today on Mother Mayhem. All of that is what's true for you because healthy development for kids, it needs consistency, reliability, and structure of consistent love, nurturance, and validation. All of the things that you didn't get as a kid. Hi, welcome back to Mother Mayhem, a narcissistic abuse recovery podcast for daughters. I'm your host, Heather Gray. In the second episode of the show, we're going to be talking about childhood trauma, specifically introducing you to the idea that being raised by a narcissistic mom, by definition, means that your childhood was traumatic. I know that some of you are coming to this show and this isn't your first rodeo. You've been through the self-help books. You've been to therapy. You scroll through the posts about this on social media and you're all too familiar with the idea that your childhood was traumatic. Others of you though, you haven't begun to wrap your mind around it. You're not used to thinking of your childhood as something traumatic. You're just used to thinking that maybe you didn't get along with your mom too much. And perhaps it's new to you to think about the connection that you, you know, that exists between the relationship you had with your mom, the way that your mom treated you, and the struggles that you're having in the present day. Because here's the thing, trauma is a word that we see a lot, but we've got to get clear on what it means because all of us are coming to this table with different definitions. And hopefully you know, as I talk to you about this, you've already listened to my first episode where I broke down what narcissism is and what it means when we say that your mom had a personality disorder and struggled with narcissistic personality disorder. Because in that episode, that was the start of this foundational series for narcissistic abuse recovery. And I'm really being specific in the order that I'm talking about these things because I want to decrease the likelihood that you're going to get overwhelmed or triggered by my content. So when we say that your mom was a narcissist, or is a narcissist. I never quite know what passive tense to use because a lot of you, your mothers are still alive and well. Um, but what we're saying is that your childhood was marked by a persistent pattern of invalidation, disregard, minimizing, criticizing, or belittling. And for you, what that means is that you never developed a sense of safety, a sense of autonomy in the world. You never learned to have a relationship with yourself or a clear self-perception or a clear perception of the world around you or the relationships that you had. You might not be accustomed to calling this trauma. You might just think of it that you have low self-esteem or you can't ever calm down or that it's hard for you to make decisions. It might be new for you to think about this as a trauma, but it is. But here's the thing. Trauma is a word. It covers a lot of ground and that's why it's often misunderstood. On this show, when we're talking about your trauma, we're specifically talking about childhood trauma, a childhood that was absent of consistent maternal love, affection, or validation. And, you know, the key word here is consistent. It's really important that we know that like all moms lose their shit from time to time. All moms lose their patience, forget, you know, to speak with kindness. You know, they bark first and they ask questions later. And that doesn't mean that anyone who loses their mind from time to time is a narcissist. What we know about narcissists is that 
they turn on the charm from time to time, and then they pull it back. And then they turn on the charm again, and then they pull it back again. We know that your mom could love you at nine o'clock in the morning and then change her mind about you by noon. And suddenly you were the worst thing that's ever happened to her. So you're either the angel or the devil. And the consistency in your childhood was largely marked by her inconsistency, by that push-pull, by that minimization of your experience, the invalidation of your experience, and how you move through the world. Now, when we talk about it, we're not talking about this happening to you from time to time. It's that repeated pattern that makes it for her that defines her to be a narcissist, but also defines your childhood as particularly traumatic because it's the repeated exposure to unmet needs, unreturned affection, and hurtful words that leaves its mark. That's why when I'm talking to you about it, I'm calling it a trauma. And now here's the thing. We know that your mom had an arsenal of weapons that she used. She didn't just belittle you. She didn't just change the story from time to time. She had an arsenal of tools that she used to keep herself above you, to maintain her self-perception over you being able to develop an accurate perception of yourself. So when we talk about it, the one that everybody loves to talk about is gaslighting, right? Like you've heard this on social media a million times. It's always in the self-help books. It covers its fair share of YouTube videos because it gets an awful lot of clicks. Gaslighting is a clickbait worthy topic, but if you are on the receiving end of it, you know that that means that your experience as a kid was often minimized, devalued in the story that you would bring to your mom about how something happened or how you would, were feeling about a particular thing was quickly changed. So if we think about it and let's you know get super specific here, right? Last time I talked a lot in generalities because I wanted to set the stage, but I think it's important that we start creating specifics around this so we so each of you can see yourselves in it. So if we're talking about gaslighting, I want you to picture a three-year-old who, you know, sort of a three-year-old little girl who's climbing the jungle gym and she reaches for a bar just a little bit out of her grasps and, and she falls down and she scrapes her knee. She runs to her mom and her mom looks at it and says, that's nothing, you know, just put some spit on it and move on. And then if she says, but mom, it hurts. Mom, look, and mom continues to just minimize and not give it attention. At some point in time, when that happens on repeat, that three-year-old little girl, it isn't just about putting spit on it and getting on with her day. It's about, I'm not going to talk about this other thing that hurts. I'm not going to talk about the ways that I'm particularly bothered right now or something's on my mind. Because when that little girl on repeat goes to her mom with a story and her mom on repeat changes that story, minimizes her experience, tells her it isn't true, or worse says, hey, you were just grasping too high. You should have been keeping an eye on where you were in relationship to the bar ahead of you. This was your fault. Well, that little girl grows up to be somebody who doesn't take the things that bother her incredibly seriously. And when we add to it that gaslighting isn't the only tool that, you know, narcissists use in their arsenal, they also are really good at criticizing and belittling. So if we think about that three-year 
year-old girl being criticized instead of being sort of praised for climbing that jungle gym and giving something a shot that might have been scary, but instead being told that's your fault. This happened because you did something wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You're not big enough. And that's the message that three-year-old gets when she's four, when she's five, when she's six, when she's seven, then she continues to develop a self-perception that her pain doesn't matter, her experience isn't real, and that what she thinks and feels comes second to everybody else around her. When we add to that three-year-old an idea of control, that mom is constantly saying, do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, say this, don't say that, that that ability to move through the world and have your own ideas, to have an opinion, to have a point of view, to have a question even, is largely going to be impacted when on repeat you're told not to. And a lot of times what happens for you, and the reason why I'm specific in using this as a three-year-old old is because we have compassion for a three-year-old. We can see so clearly that that three-year-old deserved love, that that three-year-old deserved affection, that that three-year-old deserved a hug. So did you when you were three, but so did you when you were four and five and through all the years until you are today but you didn't get that consistently. That wasn't your experience. You didn't sort of move through the world with an experience of having, you know, your mom be empathic towards what you were going through or ask questions or experience curiosity with your perception. Instead, what you often saw is that your experience would be met with emotional blackmail if it didn't meet her criteria. You might have, you know, become all too familiar with the fact that like if you're at the, if you were three or four or five at the playground and you fell and you scraped your knee, but your mom was having a grand old time talking to the neighbor, <laughs> the neighbor, she didn't want to stop her interaction with the neighbor to tend to your knee or to scrape your knee. She, you know, instead wanted to be able to keep her conversation. So perhaps on the way home, instead of asking you if you were okay, instead of offering a Band-Aid or a tissue, you might have started to experience the silent treatment because we know narcissists are really good at delivering that emotional blackmail. And silent treatment is one of the best ways they use to punish people, to keep them in their place, to keep them from speaking up. And so if you think about that three-year-old being met like with a scraped knee, with a silent treatment, then we start to understand how that three-year-old became a 16-year-old girl not knowing how to navigate her relationship, not knowing how to, you know, participate in a friendship. And then that 13-year-old becomes a 23-year-old, becomes a 33-year-old and brings you to the present day. Because, you know, that's what your mom would do. And she did it on repeat. And if she wasn't pushing you away, making you feel small, belittling your accomplishments, perhaps she was doing the exact opposite. She was pulling you close. She was forcing you to have a singular, solitary relationship with only her, you know, where she was your primary person. She was the most important person to you. So if you imagine for a second that three-year-old growing up to a five-year-old and going to kindergarten for the first time and having her first day of school and loving her teacher and loving all the new kids and that five-year-old little girl comes racing home and telling mom, I love my teacher, Miss Shelley. She's the best. Oh my gosh, we got to make our own name tags and I got to pick my own desk and you know, I tripped and I fell for a second, but she kissed my knee and told me it was going to be okay. Well, 
Well, a mother who wants you to only have a relationship with you didn't meet your experience with enthusiasm or excitement or understanding. She met it with criticism or judgment and made you feel like there was something wrong for liking your teacher so much. Narcissists operate in extremes and they have this arsenal of, and all of it is intended not for your growth, not for your development, but to keep them on the top of the totem pole, to keep themselves on the top of the pyramid and everybody else around them, including you at a level that's lower than them. And here's the thing. Remember what we said in the last episode? You know, those are all the tools and tactics of a narcissist, but a narcissist in their way of moving through the world, it's not episodic. It's not something that happens from time to time. So when kids are exposed to these kinds of traumas, this kind of thing that I'm talking to you about, what I'm talking to you about is that this is something that happened on repeat. So these things that your mom did, this pervasive way your mom moved through the world in relationship with you by demanding of you, controlling you, belittling you, controlling your relationship with other people, gaslighting you, all of these little traumas and big traumas, they were tools and tactics that she used as a way to maneuver and manipulate the world around you since you were a kid. Remember what we said in the last episode, narcissism isn't something that is episodic. It's not something that just happened from time to time. And it's important that you understand that when kids are exposed to these kinds of traumas at an early age, they're not able to develop a a healthy sense of self. They're not able to connect with their bodies and understand what they're thinking or feeling. And they're not able to trust what they're thinking or feeling because they've constantly been told throughout their childhood that what they're thinking or what they're feeling or what they're experiencing is wrong. So they don't know how to have a healthy relationship with themselves. They don't understand what's going on in their body and they don't know how to have a healthy relationship with other people. All of that is what's true for you. Because healthy development for kids, it needs consistency, reliability, and structure of consistent love, nurturance, and validation. All of the things that you didn't get as a kid. You know, kids, when they're growing up and learning how to navigate everything around them, there's different developmental stages. And I I don't want to take you down the scientific, clinical, you know, jargon too much, but kids have to learn how to trust. They have to learn autonomy. They have to gain that sense of identity and they have to learn how to get close to others. And they need repeated experiences to be able to do that and practice. And for healthy development, that needs to happen regularly and consistently consistently and reliably. But the only thing that was regular and consistent and reliable in your childhood was your mom's narcissism. So she disrupted all of the opportunities you had for normal, healthy development. You didn't get the tools you needed to become a healthy adult. And, you know, of course, if you're looking at this through this lens, hopefully you see how it's impossible for you to have a healthy relationship or a healthy awareness of your body, a healthy awareness of yourself and what's going on for you, or a healthy connection to other people because you never had that opportunity to do it in a normal, consistent way that you could get practice at it and build resilience and competency with it. The other thing that's really important to understand here is that emotional trauma impacts you physically in your body. 
you might very well be stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. And I want to walk you through it because, and I, I know this isn't <laughs> this isn't particularly my wheelhouse and I get, again, a little clinical and scientific here, but it's really important that we all get on the same page and really understand this because when a child experiences trauma, the brain's stress response system is activated. That causes the flood of stress hormones and we know them as cortisol and adrenaline. And like on random days, when there's something going on that a child needs a quick response time, those stress hormones come in handy because they prepare the child for that fight, flight, or freeze response. But for you, you were probably ended up pre-wired to constantly be in fight, flight, or freeze because you didn't know where the next threat was coming from. You were always scanning your environment for what kind of mood your mom was in, what, you know, sort of what the right answer on this particular day might be, how she needed you to show up, she needed you to be quiet, if she needed you to be her best friend, if she needed you to be like the super duper helper in the family. When you're constantly wired to be scanning for that, you have no idea how to then get out of the stress response response when things stop being stressful. So what happens for you, you know, you as a developing kid, it becomes really hard to regulate emotion. It becomes hard to focus and keep attention on tasks. And you might find that it's harder for you to make decisions than it seems to be for other people. And that isn't your imagination. That's what happens to brains when they're wired for stress and not wired for calm. So it, when responding to chronic stress, your brain then gets hyper vigilant. It means you're always on high alert. You're always scanning for threats or risk or danger, and you're looking for it in all kinds of places, even when it doesn't exist. That means that you're a little bit pre-wired for anxiety. Um, you're pre-wired for hypervigilance, and you're pre-wired to you know, have a difficulty tending to tasks because you're always looking over your shoulder for the next thing. It can be really hard for kids of, you know, who have gone through childhood trauma, particularly those of you with narcissistic moms, because again, there's all kinds of childhood traumas. I can't cover them all. I can only cover the one that we're talking about on this show. It can be really hard for you to relax. Um, and for you and particularly, you might find it hard to relax because your mom might have pathologized rest. Um, think about this for a second. Think about how if you were just doing nothing, if you were in your room staring out a window, how your mom might have created a narrative around that. She probably wouldn't have called you creative. She probably wouldn't have sort of encouraged your imagination. She probably blamed you, called you lazy, asked you why you were, you know, sort of doing your homework, wondering why you didn't have any friends, wondering why you were doing anything other than just simply lying on your bed and staring out the window. So now I want to bring you to present day, because again, I want to help you understand how these things that happened as a kid impact you in your present day. Think of the last time you were, you know, in a room by yourself with your phone, scanning Instagram or watching TikTok or looking at a YouTube video or reading the latest blog or, you know, whatever it is we all do on our phones nonstop. Think about being by yourself and aimlessly doing it. And then I want you to just take a second here and imagine the sound of footsteps, somebody about to enter the room that you're in. How would that feel in your body? 
how would you react? Does it make you sort of want to pick up your phone or put down your phone and do something else? Do you suddenly feel a compulsion to start cleaning the room, to look busy, to open up a different um, you know, screen on your computer, to look like you're at work? Um, does it make you want to look like you're doing anything other than aimlessly scanning on your phone? Because that's what you're talking about. When your body gets dysregulated, it hasn't learned to calm. You can't just aimlessly scan on your phone and be okay with the sound of approaching footsteps. You become more biologically wired to stand at attention, to be on alert. And that's what feels normal for you. So your habit might be to seek the places and situations and people who replicate that feeling because it's what you've come to know. Rest becomes scary, becomes unfamiliar, and becomes a sign or a symbol or a situation that feels largely intimidating and risky. And when you're wired that way and you're scanning for risks and threats of safety, trust is really, really hard. That's why it becomes hard for you to get close to people in a way that feels genuine and authentic. Because we as humans, um, when we have normal natural development, we are wired for connection. We are wired for closeness and intimacy. But a childhood that's fraught with disruption and trauma and inconsistency and invalidation, the only thing that your body is wired for is safety and protection. That's the only priority it has is to keep you safe. So as a result, your body is largely wired to separate you you from other people. If you have a pattern of self-sabotage in relationships, if you have a sort of, if you look at like your relationship history or your friendship history and you see that it's largely marked by disruption, it's because learning consistency and staying present inside a relationship is something that you never got to experience. So it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel nurturing or warm or intimate. It feels like at any point in time, it could all go to hell in a handcart. And for a lot of people, they experience it like their body is on fire. You know, that's why I'm walking you through it because I want you to see how this has impacted you and how you were more or might be more. Um, I don't want to be so presumptuous and assume that you're all in the exact same spot of the healing journey, but that might be why you're more wired for risk and scanning for threats of safety than you are for trusting people. Because these traumatic experiences, they impact the way your brain and your nervous system develop. So it becomes hard to regulate emotions. It becomes really difficult to manage stress. And when you're not able to manage your emotions and you're not able to manage stress, it's really hard to connect with yourself or with other people because sometimes what happens is you become more sort of depressed or you become more, you know, more likely to become anxious. Your body gets wired for those like highs and lows. So you're either feeling like crap or you're feeling super high strung, but either way, you're not able to be still enough to connect with yourself, to connect with your body or to connect with other people. One of the reasons why I'm doing this show and why I'm talking to you about this particular topic is because just as your brain has this capacity to be affected by trauma, it also has an enormous capacity to heal, to adapt, and to become resilient. I'm a therapist and I like to think that's what therapy is for and why it's so valuable, but also why I'm here talking to you today. Because I really think that a conversation about this can help you increase your understanding of yourself, your own responses and increase your ability to heal. 
you're going to learn what's going on with you so that you can learn the tools and strategies for adapting. We can rewire your brain and your nervous system so that you can find new ways of coping and relating to others. And the words I'm using to help you understand all of this, they really matter because the phrasing of this and the the verbiage that people use, it can be a lot. And I want us again, like I said at the start of the episode, and as we dig in deeper, people talk about this in all kinds of ways. You hear about childhood trauma, you hear about PTSD, you hear about CPTSD. And these phrases, they're not interchangeable. I do think that I myself find, you know, end up sometimes from time to time being a little guilty of making them interchangeable. And I know that we can see them used interchangeably on social media or through YouTube videos. So if you'll bear with me for just a little bit, I want to make sure that we all get on the same page around what these are because they're not interchangeable. Childhood trauma is largely what I've walked you through already. It refers to the pattern of experiences that happened to you as a kid that were emotionally or physically distressing. We're talking about abuse, we're talking about neglect, and sometimes we're talking about witnessing violence or neglect of other people. Childhood trauma, it has long lasting effects on your own mental health and on your physical health, on your behavior and on your relationships. That's what we're largely talking about when we talk about, um, you know, being the daughter of a narcissistic mother. Sometimes people call this PTSD. I'm not such a fan of that. I get it because PTSD is largely understood. People have started to, you know, wrap their heads around the idea that like a trauma happens and we experience it. And oftentimes PTSD, when we're using that, you know, phrase deliberately and correctly, we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and we're talking about a person's response to a stressful event. Um, And that event is often singular. Sometimes some people will, you know, make a caveat for, you know, one or two incidences and calling those the combined incidences of back-to-back traumas, you know, saying that somebody is struggling with PTSD. But largely PTSD is something that focuses around a particular incident or couple of incidences. With you and your upbringing, what we're talking about is childhood trauma. If we're going to use a trauma lens on it, another phrase you might have encountered is CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. You are not going to hear me use that phrase too, too often because honestly, I trip up on my words every single time I use it. But what we're talking about with CPTSD is that chronic exposure to trauma. And when you're raised by a narcissistic mom and you haven't had any opportunity for healthy development or to develop a sense of self or to understand the way your body is moving or to understand your relationship with other people, what we're talking about there is CPTSD because it was happening chronically and on repeat over and over again. And when we're talking about you know, all of this, we're talking about how you connect to your present day in your body and how it feels to be you. We're talking about your self-perception, any sort of how you see yourself, your strengths, any understanding of your own strengths, your own weaknesses, and then how you see yourself in relationship to other people. And all of that means that a lot of healing has to happen because your development was chronically disrupted 
all of those things, the relationship you have with your body, the relationship you have with yourself, the relationship you have with other people, the relationship you have with the world around you, all of those things have been impacted. Now, I promised you at the end of the last episode that I was going to teach you how to start calming down from all of that. And it's really important to me that I give you actionable tools. I want you to understand the dynamics at play because it's so crucial that we help you make sense of your mess. But if I want to help you have a better relationship with yourself, which I do, and I want to help you improve your relationship with other people, which I do, all of those topics are interesting and they're titillating and they're a lot more clickbait worthy than body regulation and (laughs) calming your somatic symptoms, I promise you. But I can't get you to have a better relationship with yourself or a better relationship with other people until I help you have a better relationship with your body. So we have to tackle body dysregulation. And again, I'm throwing another psychobabble word at you. And you know, if y'all are staying awake and staying with me, I'm grateful. Um, I know that I'm talking about tedious, dry topics. But for some of you, this is the first time anybody has connected the way your mom talked to you, raised you, treated you to the problems you're having as an adult. And a lot of people who were raised in chronically traumatic childhoods struggle with something called body dysregulation, an ability to regulate their physical body, their emotions, and the way they see the world around them. So, you know, let's just get into it here, right? I talk about when I'm referring to body dysregulation, I'm talking about the fact that your body's stress response system may over time have become overly sensitive. It leads you to feelings of anxiety, hypervigilance, or a feeling like you're constantly on edge. People who struggle with body dysregulation, it can show up in all kinds of different ways. Some of you might have those physical symptoms of anxiety, but others of you might feel headachey, or you might feel like you get chronic stomach aches, or your body is always tight. You might find it difficult to eat or to swallow or to calm down. Others of you might be noticing changes in your breathing. A lot of the women that I see, they'll talk about their racing hearts or they'll talk talk about sweating, but they'll also just talk about like feeling like their body is on fire. But not everybody responds in this weird, highly acute, agitated way. Some people, they go in the opposite direction. They completely turn off. They are numb and disconnected and they couldn't tell you if they had a headache, even if they did, because they're so out of touch. Their brain is protecting them from all of the pain they've experienced, all of the things that they've gone through by disconnecting them entirely from their sense of self, their sense of body, or their sense of relationship with other people. So it's a really, really, big deal. If you think about body dysregulation, it's a really good way of looking at it as like a faulty car alarm. The alarm might go off when um, somebody is jiggling on the handle and somebody's trying to break into the car or whatever the sensor is for your car. But if you've ever had one of those key fobs go off because someone else, (laughs) someone else's car in the neighborhood is going off and somehow it sets your car off, That's what body dysregulation can feel like because your body no longer knows if the threat is real, if it's an actual threat, or if it's just a perceived threat. 
And it doesn't know, like there's no gauge for like somebody is breaking into this thing right now versus someone kind of not so like, you know, uh, safe looking is walking down the street and might be approaching your car. Um, the, your system is completely, you know, the wiring is completely faulty, has become unreliable, but it leaves you in that chronic stress response. So it's important, you know, when I talk about this, because this is the stuff that when women come to me, they feel crazy. They feel like they're reacting to nothing. They're blowing up relationships. They can't make a decision. They can't sit still. They can't focus. And they just, they use the crazy word. I am not a fan of that word. But if you ask any woman who's going through this, she's going to tell you she feels crazy. And so it's really important that I remind you of the thing that I said in the last episode we had together, that abnormal responses to abnormal events are normal behaviors. All of these things that I'm walking you through, the inability to connect to your body, the inability to connect with an accurate self-perception, the inability to have relationships with other people, all of that is a normal response to the series of abnormal events of how you were raised. And I know you want to get to that point where you just feel better about yourself and you might want to be tackling perfectionism or your people-pleasing tendencies and maybe are coming to me because you want to get better at boundary setting. I know that for a lot of you, relationships are the only thing that matters, that it feels like your whole life is going to get better if I just help you have better relationships. And I want to get to all of that. But I can't get to any of it until I help you have a better relationship with your body, until I help you connect your body and your head and your mind and your heart to the physical symptoms of what's going on with you. Because if your system is dysregulated and your emotions and your heart rate and your breathing are all out of control, anything I tell you to tackle perfectionism, anything I tell you to help you have a better relationship with yourself, none of it's going to work. And so I want you to be able to begin the process of healing your body, of regulating your nervous system, calming you down in a stressful event so you can start to feel more in control of all of this. What I want to do is teach you something that in the psychobabble world we call grounding. Grounding means rooting you in the current date, space, time and presence of what is happening right now. Not what happened three days ago, not what happened three minutes ago, not what might happen in the next three minutes, but teaching your body to calm itself down so it can be rooted in the present, getting you in touch with your five senses, the things you can see, taste, smell, you know, touch, hear, all of those things. So in order to do that, your body isn't going to be wired to calm itself down. So for example, if you're wired for anxiety and you are more hypervigilant, your body in no way, <laughs> shape or form knows how to calm down just because somebody who's watching you be anxious tells you to calm down. We're going to have to walk your body through it. And I have sort of three, what I would call like the beginner um, grade school, basic low level entry skills that are easier to learn 
at the beginning when you're first starting to understand this. There are more complex strategies you can use over time to regulate your nervous system and calm your body. And I'm going to introduce you know, you to those down the line. But what I really need you to get better at in the moment is just getting yourself to a place of calm in the present. So I want to walk you through three things. One is I want to help you get close to and connected to your breath. And if you're anything like me, you bomb out of yoga really fast. I am like the ultimate failure at yoga. And anytime somebody tells me to find my breath or to be still, I'm like, isn't there like a cardio solution for this? Can I like just get out of this with some sort of hit workout or something like that? Deep breathing for some people feels risky, feels unfamiliar, and feels like you're sort of navigating a foreign world. But if I can get you to learn deep breathing, if I can let you calm yourself down, it's the first step towards slowing your role a little bit when you're feeling reactive, when you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling just a little bit out of control. The example I like to use with deep breathing in a perfect world, you are doing this lying down on a hard floor. So you can be on a rug or whatever, but I really like it when people are just starting out connecting to their breath and calming themselves down is to feel every part of themselves. (laughs) Let me use proper grammar as I teach you this. Every part of yourself touching the ground because we want to help you with grounding. And the easiest way to do that is if you can feel the back of your head on the ground, your shoulder blades, your bum, your elbows, your balls of your feet. If you can lay on the ground and close your eyes. For me, when I do it, I like to have like one hand on my heart on, you know, sort of on my rib cage and another one a little bit further down on my belly. And I want you to think about breath and deep breathing as a breath that comes starting at the tips of your toes. And I'm not going to do it on the podcast because nobody needs to hear heavy breathing on audio. (laughs) But I want you to close your eyes and start to think of a deep inhale. And when you're inhaling, I want you to think about that breath as starting in the tips of your toes, going up your calf, up over your knee, across the top of your thighs, into your pelvis, into your diaphragm, up across your rib cage, up through your throat, over your face, and to the top of your head, through your tips of your fingers. And then I like when I'm teaching this to people, I like it when you take that inhale at the top of your head and then you hold it for a beat. Not till like you're holding your breath, but just hold it for a beat. And then you let your breath out. You let it out from the top of your head and you let it go down your neck, down your back, down the back of your pelvis, the back of your legs, down through the heels of your feet and out. One deep breath should take you, if you're doing it, 10 seconds in, 10 seconds out. And if you can get practice at doing that just to start for one to three minutes, 
that's a really good place to begin. And if you can build the habit of starting that at the start of your day or at the end of your day, just as your bot, you're getting used to doing it on the regular, that will help you build a habit of tuning into yourself and feeling all of it. Now, over time, you're not going to need to be flat on your back on the ground over time. And some of you like you may already be there. And I, I recognize that. But again, I'm trying to get us all here on the same page. So if you can get in the habit of starting with doing that for a couple of minutes a day and work yourself up to five minutes a day to 10 minutes a day, you will start to teach your body how to calm itself down. It won't be able to be on demand. It won't be able to be used in stressful situations right away, but you will be able to rely on it more consistently the more consistently you do it. So work on that habit and get yourself to a place where you're taking five to 10 minutes a day of deep breathing, starting flat on the ground. And then as you get better, you'll be able to do it sitting up on the couch or you know, at the beginning of your day, at the end of your day. And you won't always need to do it for five to 10 minutes because your body will cue itself to do it faster, more consistently and more reliably. Now, once you feel like you've mastered the art of deep breathing, you might want to get a little more interesting. <laughs> I want to teach you about something called progressive muscle relaxation. Now, I have to be honest with you, I had to Google that one. I knew the exercise, I didn't know the name of it. But a lot of times when people you know, focus just on deep breathing, they're not really aware of how tense they are. They don't become aware of where they're holding tension in their body, what parts of them feel kind of wired or tight or on edge. And if you've constantly been wired in that fight, flight, or freeze, it feels tense all the time. So it can be really hard to tell the difference. One of the things that I like to do is teach people the idea of holding tension deliberately and intently and then releasing it because it teaches you to notice when your body is replicating that deliberate tension, and then it will recognize when things are calm. Because again, remember what I've walked you through with this, you know, with this episode, as we've talked about trauma, your body gets dysregulated. So noticing calm versus busy, noticing stress versus risk, all of those things are really confusing. And we can't always rely on your body's gut response because it's always wired for risk. If we can start to create like an awareness of conscious tension, then you will be able to notice when your body is unusually tense and you will get more in control of responding to it in a way that feels like you're guiding that ship and you're in control versus your body overreacting to a point of tension in your system. So what I want you to think about is focusing on different muscle groups, different parts of your body. The ones that I tend to think about most often are curling your toes and making fists with your hands. Other people do other things. I've you know, seen people sort of hold tension in their shoulder blades and release and hold tension in their pelvis and release. That's probably a little bit above my pay grade. What I really like to teach is deliberately holding tension in your body so that you can notice it. And when your body is pre-wired for risk and tension and you're used to always being tense, you might need to curl your toes and make fists 
at the same time and hold it for maybe a beat of three to five seconds and then release. And when you release, experience the relaxation and the release of tension that happens in the back of your neck, across your shoulder blades, across your hands, and across the tips of your toes. Because a lot of times the tension part is the familiar part. You already know what that part feels like. What you might not know is the relaxation part. So you want to be able to feel that release. And if you think about it, and as you're listening, you can do this right now. If you curl up your toes and you curl up your hands, as you release, when you release your hands and you release your toes, you're going to feel that release in the back of your shoulder blades. Some of you will feel it in the back of your head. You will feel the release of your toes in the back of your calf. But we want to teach your body to do that regularly because the goal here is for you to be able to calm yourself with more ease, more consistency, and faster than your body currently can. So after a deep breathing exercise, if you're really genuinely in this with me and you're going to give this the college try and you're going to try deep breathing for three minutes, add a minute or two of this muscle relaxation where you're deliberately holding the tension and you're deliberately releasing it. And the more you get practice at this, the more you do it, when you tell your body to calm down, it's going to know what you're talking about. And it's going to be able to do it when you say so. Now, this last one, this is a little more complicated and it, it definitely, definitely takes more practice than deep breathing or, you know, plain old muscle relaxation. But what I want you to think about is begin introducing yourself to a concept of mindfulness. And God, another overused word that we see everywhere. But mindfulness, you know, for the sake of what I'm talking to you about, I just want you to be aware of the present. I want you to be aware of your thoughts and your feelings, and I want you to learn how to be aware of them without judgment. So what I try to do, because, you know, being aware of those things without distracting thoughts, without worries, without paying attention to your to-do list in your head or wondering what's going to happen in the next five minutes is a real challenge. But if you can get practice at finding a quiet place where you can sit comfortably and then just focus on your breath, it doesn't have to be that crazy deep breathing that I just walked you through, but just basic calming of noticing your breath, of your breath coming in and your breath coming out and training your brain that whenever your mind wanders, bring your attention gently, not without judging, not without, you know, sort of belittling yourself, just bring your attention back to the present moment. Because what we want you to do is be able to, when you're reacting out of control and you're not sure why you're responding so strongly, to be able to check in with yourself. But your body hasn't learned how to do that. You haven't learned how to do that. A beginning process to getting you there is helping you just sit, be still, notice the thought, notice the feeling, notice where you're feeling it in your body and bring yourself back to tension. Now that one is going to take a little bit of time to get used to. I really like recommending that particular exercise for the end of the day. If you start your day with some deep breathing and muscle relaxation and tension and release, and you make a promise to yourself that you are going to work on mindfulness and learning how to connect to the present for five to 10 minutes at the end of the day, you are going going a long way and you are actually making significant progress in teaching your body how to regulate itself. 
And once we have you better connected to your body, that opens the door to help you have a better relationship with yourself. And that's where we're going in the next episode. We're going to be tackling self-care, self-compassion, and self-acceptance. I want to set the stage for that conversation by getting you grounded, teaching you how to be present, getting your body to be calm so that you can take that conversation in easier. If you don't know how to calm down when you're listening to that episode, you're just going to be focusing on what I'm going to say next and how this is, you know, when am I going to get to the part when XYZ or when am I going to cover ABC? So I walked you through this exercise of calming your body and getting used to that so that in the next episode, when we talk about helping you improve the relationship you have with yourself, improving your own self-compassion, and your own awareness of yourself, you are going to be able to sit and tolerate that conversation. Because if you can make a promise to yourself that calming your body is your priority and you start to make calming your body your habit, then that is the first step towards having that self-compassion for yourself because you deserve a calm body and you deserve to feel calm as you move through the world. Thank you so much for sitting in this conversation with me today. I know you're eager to dive into some of the juicier bits of narcissistic abuse recovery and and all of that. So thank you for getting into the weeds with me and having this conversation because this part is really powerful for you. Information is power and it gives you access to the tools you need to improve your life. Thank you so much for being in it with me today because I'm certainly in it with you. I would love to hear what you think. If you have a comment or a question, please do send it my way. Heather at daughtersnpd.com. You're welcome to attach a voice memo to it with a comment, a question, or a concern. As you begin to know and trust me more with this content and with these conversations, I really do want you writing in with your stories, your experiences, and your questions. My dream for this show is that it's so much more about you than it is about me and what I have to say, that you're talking to me way more than I'm talking to you. I think we can partner together and make this an advice show where you're the expert on you and I offer the expertise on trauma, recovery, and mother-daughter relationships. I know we can build a community of daughters joining together to recover from narcissistic abuse. I so appreciate your time today. A special thanks to Emmanuel Alconco for tackling the editing of this show. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the show. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Your feedback is going to help make this show better. If you know a woman who needs this conversation in her life, please share it with her too. You can also always find me over on Instagram at daughtersnpd. Until next time, take care of you. Know that I'm in it with you. Thanks for listening to Mother Mayhem. Bye for now.